Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. All right, welcome back to the Addiction Connection podcast. This is episode number 26. Yes, and today we have with us Dr. Greg Amer, and he is a addiction physician here in the Twin Cities. So bringing him in to talk a little bit about his career and some of the interesting ways that addiction treatment has changed over the years as he's been doing this for a bit. So so thanks for coming, Dr. Amer. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. And Sam. I think that, that I think uh, before we even go, we just have to, and we interrupt each other a lot. I'm just kind of preface that, but I'm used to it. <laughs> we, uh, I think the primary thing to focus on, just because right now, of course, we're in the middle of the opioid epidemic. Is you know, you were the first buprenorphine provider in Minnesota, and obviously, a lot of addiction happened before that. But that's a pretty cool thing to just say. Yeah, it is. And actually, we were like what the number hundredth. Yeah, and when we were, yeah, we were 104 and 105. Uh, in Minnesota, actually, which was interesting. But Dr. Amer is one of the people that helped us get going. So soft spot in our heart for him. Well, that's because I didn't leave you. Chris Hickman, you know, I I bothered him and bothered him and (laughs) bothered him until we got to go to your cool clinic. So So tell us a little bit about what what, uh, brought you into the old addiction world. Do you want to go way back or should I tell you first about the buprenorphine? Oh, let's go way back. We'll go Let's go way back. Yeah, historical. What made you think that addiction was something you wanted to deal with? I did my, I went to med school at St. Louis University Mm -hmm. and then uh, came up here to do a family practice residency simply because University of Minnesota had one of the uh, most notable family practice residency programs. Um, So so I moved up here from St. Louis and... uh, So is that where you're from? I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, really? Yeah. That's kind of ironic being in Ohio with the whole opioid epidemic now. And... uh, (laughs) Settled in. I married a uh, emergency room nurse from St. Mary's Hospital. Mm. So back in, I did my residency 1975 to 78, and uh, St. Mary's, it was two hospitals right next to each other. St. Mary's, a Catholic hospital, and Fairview, a Lutheran hospital. Mm. So all those buildings there used to be two hospitals. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know any of this. And they, they weren't connected at all, except through the residency program. Wow. Um, like Sioux Falls. Yeah. But St. Mary's uh, in the, like 1968 opened up a chemical dependency treatment program. And then uh, it was Hazelden was one. Hazelden was already started. But St. Mary's was one of the first in the country hospital based treatment programs. So patients admitted to St. Mary's were admitted to the hospital. They had to have attending physicians. They had charts. There were nurses. So they treated chemical dependency. Uh, as the disease that it is. So they were forefront, uh, mm. forerunners in that. Yeah, was, how did they even think to do that? Was there a reason why they did that or just they wanted to kind of do something new or was there a big issue in the area? Well, there was untreated alcoholism and raging alcoholism, which had been around a long time. George Mann was the founder of the St. Mary's Treatment Program mm. and his wife had alcoholism and there was a psychiatrist that became involved and head of St. Mary's was Sister Mary Madonna, and she became involved, and they thought that this would be a good idea, so they opened up a little 
eight-bed unit in the hospital, and then it went, quickly went to a 20-bed unit. Wow. And then it went over to the uh, rehab center next door, and they took it over, and soon it became a 100 inpatient bed treatment program. Wow. That's amazing. Was the treatment, and, and so at that time it was mostly alcohol. That Most, that, mostly alcohol. Yep. And, you know, they quickly got up to the, you know, near 100 patients, and the treatment was four weeks. It was the typical, like, like Hazelden, 28-day stay. Um, there was no separation between detox and treatment. Patients went in, and they were detoxed along with the people that were in treatment. There was no, they were, it was not different at all. Wow. To me, that's kind of interesting because I wonder if the patients in treatment were then able to maybe see what detox looked like to kind of give themselves a little bit of they insight were right there, into... Yeah. Your roommate might be in detox and you might be in your fourth week of treatment. Wow. Huh. So there was no separation. As compared to now, I mean, how do you think others from the outside, other staff that weren't involved in the chemical dependency world there, how, did they, how do you think they viewed that? You know, now we deal with so much stigma. Was there those same issues then? Not so much. It was really so well thought of, and it was so successful. There was a lot of good energy about it. I mean, it was uh, exciting. The uh, grand rounds that we would give were well attended. They were, I think the, the issue was how can we get our patient in there? There was so much untreated alcoholism that um, the, the, the place quickly filled up, and Doctors then began admitting people to the to the medical unit uh, under some fake other diagnosis, under <laughs> some other diagnosis, so that they would be the first in line to get into the treatment program. Was there to get in? I think that's a good point. Is was there some type of screening process? You know, like there is now with the Rule Twenty Five, or how did you get in? Uh, it was considered an inpatient medical admission wow. going into the treatment program. So. Mm. Um, which was, I think that's why the insurance companies had to fight back later on because every day of the 28th day was considered a inpatient medical admission. Yeah. They loved that. Yeah. How many years were you involved with that particular program? I, well, it's, I started, I, so I finished my residency in 1978 and they desperately needed doctors to be the attending physician for these patients. So I said that I would. And I'd be, I've been in the business ever since. Wow. <laughs> like right out of residency. So right out of residency. In fact, it's interesting. I finished my residency on June 30th, 1978. And I was joining a two other doctors in a new family practice group, Riverside Family Physicians. Yeah. Wow. Right next door in the professional building where I am now. But um, it was coming up to the 4th of July weekend. It was June 30th. I think that was a Friday. And my new partners put me on call that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so on July 1st, I was on call. And uh, they called me from the treatment program and said, we have a new patient for you on Saturday, July 1st. I said, I just started. Do I, <laughs> do I have to come in and see this person on Saturday? And they said, well, maybe you can just give orders. I don't know. But yeah, I was working from day one. Well, just out of residency, you probably went in because you felt like that's what you had to do as that's a resident. That's what I had to do, yeah. Ironically, I was on call my first day of real practice, too. Mm, that's something. Yeah. <laughs> but most of the patients were alcohol, and they weren't as sick. It, over the years, with it being filtered out and uh, triaged, the patients coming into detox now are sicker than they used to be. Back then, you know, you could be just a person 
with abs- uh, you know with a full time job, uh, um, having no medical problems, you're admitted to the inpatient twenty eight day unit. Wow. You really don't have any medical problems, so only a few people needed the medical detox. Mm. Um, yeah. But we treat we did histories and physicals on all of them, and um, there wasn't a daily visit; it was a weekly visit that was required because they were fine. Yeah, they were in treatment. Were there any types of medications that you used back then, or was it mostly AA based, or what was kind of the treatment program like? The treatment program was definitely uh, AA twelve step based. Okay. It was um, that was that was the. That was the mode of operation back then. There was no mm-hmm. other alternative, and it was basically the big book, the twelve steps. Yep, this is what you have to do. Um, I became as a family practice doctor. I became in, mostly involved quickly with um, the detox, how to treat them. These people have medical problems, and how do we treat them? And the program before I started had this standard. Uh, fixed dose Librium protocol for alcohol detox. And I thought, boy, these patients are, a lot of them are getting over medicated. Why are they all getting Librium? Um, Isn't there something else? So I started to, I became really interested in alcoholism. Um, My mother at that time was an alcoholic and she ended up dying not too long after that. So I I was really interested in learning about alcoholism and so I, um, when I started, I went to a lot of lectures. I started to read a lot. I had to basically teach myself because there were no standard protocols back then. Um, mm. nothing. So you wrote the protocols for treatment facilities. Based on what you learned. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So I became interested, and in, I switched. Um, this was one of my first mistakes. But it, was, it worked for a while, was switching <laughs> the alcohol withdrawal protocol from uh, Librium to Ativan. Mm-hmm. I thought they won't be as over-sedated. Ativan is not as long-acting. The metabolites are inactive. Uh, I switched them to a tri- symptom-triggered treatment rather than the fixed dose, and that worked real well for a period of time. But then later on in my career, I became, so I started in 78, and in 1988, Dr. Mann retired, and I became medical director. Okay. Mm. So it was at this time that... Um, I did more. I uh, started to uh, have an, a, I called it addiction medicine. I was going to uh, um, ASAM meetings back then. I, uh, ASAM wasn't called ASAM. It was called the American Society of Alcoholism and Other Drug Dependencies. Am- oh, well. AMSOD. <laughs> AMSOD. Um, I went to uh, University of Utah School of Alcoholism for physicians to learn more about alcoholism, which was really good. So, Does that still exist? I don't know. Good question. I haven't looked into it. Mm. So then you went back to Librium at no, some point, I no? No, I didn't. Um, we started to have people having seizures oh, with the Ativan protocol because it was leaving the system too quickly, Yep, and they still weren't done with detox. You know, physiologically, and they had we had seizures, and we had too many people being undertreated with Ativan and going into DTs. So then, um, the hospital asked me uh, to come, St. Mary's Hospital, and then Fairview asked me to come up with a protocol for the medical units for treating uh, alcohol withdrawal. And so I really looked into it, and um, we came up with a protocol 
we needed to have a protocol for the alcohol withdrawal scale. Sure. So I looked into the CEWA and a mm-hmm. lot of different recommendations, but there was one out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, by um, an article by David Benzer that used the Modified Selective Severity Assessment, okay. the MSSA. Hmm. And I would particularly liked that because it had two of the items were vital signs, which I thought were important. <laughs> it was only a 10-item screening test. Um, so we developed a protocol using the MSSA as our, as our alcohol withdrawal scale. Hmm. And I switched to Valium simply because it was long-acting, and I thought they're going to have less seizures. And it was amazing. Once we switched to Valium, uh, we didn't see over-sedation. And the seizure uh, rate went way down, and the DT went, rate went way down. So it was interesting. So when I was in residency, every, last you know, month, <laughs> I finished residency in 2012. But in residency, the CWA was always out of base, and that's what we used in Sioux Falls. And I learned about Librium totally off by accident. And I always just used a Librium protocol in residency. I just didn't love Ativan, but never went to the Valium then. Yeah. Um, are they still using that same protocol, the MMSA? MSSA? MS, yeah, it became standard for uh, St. Mary's. And then when Fair, Saint, Fairview bought St. Mary's for Fairview, and then all the Fairview hospitals, and then it went over to the University of Minnesota. So it's still standard around here. That's we crazy should. because we in greater Minnesota and all the hospitals – even, you know, the Duluth hospitals, they all still use the CWA. So it's just interesting mm. that it's... We, we received um, some request to switch to the CWA, but the detox nurses at Fairview uh, actually started to do their own study. They would do some patients use... They did the CWA and the MSSA on each patient, and they found when using the CWA, the patients were undertreated. Interesting. Wow. So we stole your buprenorphine protocol, so we might need to yeah. now steal your MSSA <laughs> protocol. We're going to steal this one, too. We'll break in and take it. So let's, can we, or were you going to okay, No, I'm actually moving question. on. I'm moving That's on just a little. That's what I was going to do. So at what point did you start to have an interest in treating other addictions other than alcohol? Where did that kind yeah. of come in? So it wasn't long after I started. You know, say, there was mostly alcohol back then, but I got a call one night. Um, St. Mary's would receive a lot of patients from out of state because mm. it was such a well-regarded program and a lot from New York City. Oh, So we got a lot of, and we started to get heroin addicts coming from New York City. So I got a call from the admission nurse saying, we have this heroin addict from New York City. What do you want to do? And I just was perplexed. They said, well, Froze. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what heroin is. I, I that was my first reaction. I don't know. How do you treat heroin withdrawal? And she said, well, I went to this at Hazelden. They used Darvon. Oh, so we, <laughs> she doesn't even know what that is. That's you and Darvacet. I do. Isn't that Darvacet? <laughs> no, no, not exactly. Propoxyphene. Yeah, it's just propoxyphene without the Tylenol. Yeah. Oh, well. So uh, we did that for like one patient, and it wasn't very effective. So um, I had to teach myself again, and there was a Mark Gold who is still active in ASAM, and he, came, he wrote a study on using clonidine for treating el- uh, opioid withdrawal. So I studied that, and that became our protocol. We used clonidine. What year was this, roughly? Oh, in the uh, early 80s. Wow. Okay. Mm. So it wasn't me. I wasn't born yet. Yeah, she wasn't even alive. You and I can talk. um, So clonidine was it. Um, That was the only thing we could use, and they just kind of suffered through it. And if patients had high blood pressure, we could give them a lot of clonidine. Sure. And that was effective. 
but anybody like a female heroin addict coming off of heroin they're with the low blood pressure, their clonidine, their blood pressure would get too low, and so we couldn't give them enough. And so then I learned about mm-hmm. methadone, and sure. I read the, me- the uh, DEA regulations on methadone and found out about this three-day emergency loophole that we could use. So we used methadone occasionally for three days using 30, 20, 10, and that helped a little bit. But we were really struggling, I have to admit, with the opioid addicts. They just had to tough it out. Yeah. Oh, man. And I don't know how much follow-up you got then since they were not necessarily local, but I wonder what their long-term, these patients that kind of toughed yeah. it out, got maybe the methadone, but what was then your, what happened to them? Yeah, what was your inkling of how the long-term was for those particular patients? Um, they were really motivated because they came from out of state. Um, they really did this intense treatment program. They kind of gutted it out through withdrawal. A lot of them stayed in Minnesota. I think the ones that stayed in Minnesota and actually became active in the recovery program uh, did okay, but I have no idea. Anybody that went back to their own environment, I'm sure, um, I'm sure it relapsed. Yeah. So heroin was your second thing, which is a big jump. Right, yeah. So how did you see other substances evolve over time? Um. Benzodiazepine, I had to learn teach myself about that, um, how to treat somebody with benzodiazepine withdrawal. I uh, learned from David Smith in, uh, this, um, in California, uh, one of the ASAM founding doctors. He came up with the Smith and Wesson phenobar. <laughs> it is. It's David. I don't know what Wesson's first name is, but it was the Smith and Wesson detox protocol for <laughs> benzodiazepines using. So they they didn't hold a gun to their head. No, no. <laughs> using phenobarbital. Huh. Interesting. And so I quickly used that, and that wasn't didn't go over very well with the psychiatrists. They were really uncomfortable with using phenobarbital. They thought it was a dangerous drug to use, but I stuck to my guns, and we finally got a protocol written about that. And that's that is stay that is still our the method that we use for detoxing people from benzodiazepines. Mm. But then an interesting um, story about the, how we evolved with uh, the buprenorphine. Uh, the 12-step programs didn't like people using other substances. This is the whole idea right. was uh, codependency or cross-addiction. So if you were addicted to alcohol, you needed to stay away from opioids and you needed to stay away from um, benzodiazepines. Um, methadone was is an opioid agonist, so there was a big anti-methadone bias um, at the 12-step program of St. Mary's. Sure. Um, in the 2003, the data 2000, well, the, in 2000, the government passed the Data Drug Addiction Treatment Act, um, allowing buprenorphine to be used for opioid dependence. It wasn't until 2003 that they made it available to doctors. Wow. Um, You practiced like 20 years treating opioid use disorder with... With buprenorphine. No, No, but but without. Prior to that, with clonidine. Absolutely. Wow. That's crazy. Did you... Let me ask you that during that time, in those 20 years before buprenorphine, did you see the opioids becoming a bigger and bigger problem in your treatment program? I mean, you could just see it snowballing? I can't say that I did, other than 
we would get, it seemed like most of the opioid addicts would be from out of state. Interesting. Didn't really see a lot. Well, they of, didn't start to push that until the late nineties. The yeah. whole pain is the fifth vital yeah, sign. Alcohol was the thing, and there was the um, person admitted to addicted to benzodiazepines, and then. In the 90s, uh, crack cocaine becomes such a big thing, and we've, we're trying to deal with that, that cocaine epidemic. But opioids were still pretty small. Wow. And so um, it was accepted that, you know, even the <clears throat> opioid epidemic with the pharmaceutical companies pushing, treating pain with opioids, that hadn't happened yet. Right. Yeah, that's true, and that's what started the fire. Right. So then as the buprenorphine you were able to start prescribing in 2003, how has that kind of obviously changed? Well, I want to know about the first experience. Oh, okay. Your, your first yeah, patient, you did your yeah, buprenorphine on. Well, my, daughter, my daughter gets some credit here. I was anti-methadone because um, uh, I was at St. Mary's. And then buprenorphine came out, and I thought, I was anti-buprenorphine. I thought that this is just another methadone. This is silly. We don't need this. Um, but I got a letter <clears throat> stating that they were having a uh, course where you can get certified to prescribe buprenorphine and was in Washington, D.C. And so I was talking to my daughter, who was in high school, about it. And she said, uh, you should go. You, you keep an open mind. You should go and just listen to what they have to say. See, young women. <laughs> so I went to Washington. I went to this buprenorphine course. And I brought this yellow legal pad, and I was going to write down all the reasons why this is stupid. <laughs> this doesn't work. And I can't say that they convinced me at the course. I did the course, and I listened to it, and I became certified to prescribe it. But I did become interested enough in it to go ahead and at least experiment. So I got an opiate. We had an opioid addict on detox and a heroin addict. And I thought, okay, we're, I got the pharmacy at, same, at Fairview St. Mary's then to, to get buprenorphine, Suboxone. And it was just the uh, two-milligram tab. And um, it was in the detox unit, so I ordered a two-milligram tab, and I waited the 24 hours as I was taught. And we sat him down and put it under his tongue. And I literally, I took the chart, and I said, vital signs every 15 minutes. <laughs> We just watched this guy, and everybody was standing around him looking at this guy, and he's looking back at us, and he's going, I, I think I feel okay. <laughs> and nothing much happened, and as you know, it, it's not dramatic. It doesn't, no. you know, but over the course of the afternoon, nothing bad happened. Yep. He had no precipitated withdrawal. He started to feel a little better, and the next day he was feeling Great. He had no opioid withdrawal symptoms, which was just a change. So you took him off the cardiac monitors at that <laughs> point. So okay. I, I, I think so, you're going to make it. So I don't feel so badly that we literally admitted our first buprenorphine induction to the ICU our at staff, our hospital. Our hospital staff thought we were crazy. They're like, "What are you exactly, doing?" Exactly. Exactly. So we had the heart. Mo we we had the continuous vital signs going, <laughs> and same thing. We're all kind of standing there watching him. I'm embarrassed. But we did that. We did the same thing. So know, at least, yeah. and that was fifteen years later. Well, but twelve years later. We're than also you. in rural Minnesota. Yeah, that's I'm true. I'm just going to say I'm cool because I did the same thing as Dr. Amer. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing happened, and it was it was amazing. Um, buprenorphine to treat opioid withdrawal. Um, did the light switch just go on right there? It did. It it, it and then every I, we just started. Clonidine went out the window. And I started to prescribe buprenorphine for. 
everybody. I started to give um, more in-services about it. I gave grand rounds about it. I started, started to teach the other doctors about it. Other doctors started to get certified. Um, so it was really cool. But then we came up the whole thing. Okay, what's buprenorphine for? Is it for treating opioid addiction is it, or is it for detox? Mm-hmm. My initial thought was, well, I'm still not in favor of methadone maintenance, and I really don't think that they should stay on this, but it's a very nice detox drug. So I would order, um, then I experimented with all kinds of quick tapers. First there was the five-day taper, and then there would go back into withdrawal after five days, and then we did this two-week taper, which I did for a couple of years. You know, just put them, detox them, and then put them on eight and six and four and two and down over the course of two weeks. Well, we saw all these patients after two weeks not only have trouble with not feeling well and insomnia and a little bit of withdrawal, um, but they'd get preoccupation and craving, and they would leave the program, and they would leave AMA, and they'd relapse and relapse and relapse. So we started to keep people on it longer. And then I started to say, well, why don't you just stay on it at this dose, eight milligrams a day, and come to see me in my practice. So then I started to do maintenance. Maintenance. Were there people in the country doing maintenance at that time also? I'm sure, yeah. But it wasn't like you knew. Like It wasn't like no. you'd talked to anybody. No. Wow. I'm just, I'm just amazed. Now, when you did your training in D.C., did they, because I just remember when we sat down and did our training, you know, in whatever year that was, we, we got to the end of the course and we're like, where do they teach you how to take a patient off of this? Because they don't yeah. in the course, at least five years ago, they didn't. Did they teach you how to do that or did they teach you specifically this is a withdrawal, this is a maintenance med? Or? They just taught us this is a maintenance med. This is an alternative to methadone. Hmm. And that's what it was for. And actually using it for detox was a... Uh, <clears throat> step that I took in my own. Gotcha. You know, I, I, it was so long acting that they t- in their course that they taught us that I thought, why can't we just give them one dose of buprenorphine and just have them be detoxed? And yep. it didn't work that well. That well. It mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't that long acting. Hmm. Um, what was the stigma like then? I mean, you know, did people think you were crazy? I mean, why, why are you giving them this med? You know, I mean, I, there's, there's so much, I think, in our in our part of rural Minnesota where there are still a lot of physicians that just don't believe this is the right thing. Well, yeah. not even physicians, but family. Oh, family. this is a drug for a drug. Or even at AA meetings still, it's still you know, seen. But it worked so well. I mean, it, it really became, the patients would always call it the miracle drug. This is the miracle drug. They never experienced anything like this. And so um, hmm. they, had, they were able to, they were, they were opioid addicts, and opioid addiction, as you know, is so hard to beat. Yeah, the, the memory for what opioid does to the brain—that that love of that feeling that keeps yep. coming back—they um, just weren't able to beat that. And then when they were on buprenorphine, they just felt normal for the first time in yep. their lives. They said, "This is just unbelievable," and I got so much positive feedback from those patients. And then the patients would be doing so well mm-hmm. and the family members see them doing so well that no i didn't see any kickback from patients family members uh, doctors our staff yep. so i started to see uh, more and more patients and then uh, we were limited uh, 30 patients was uh, all i could prescribe it to 
in the beginning. Yeah. Sure. And um, I quickly filled up, so then I would need to try to take people off of it, uh. and then that wouldn't go well. So I can't remember how long it was that I was stuck at 30 before they changed the changed rules. it to 100, and now it's 275. Yeah. So it's just interesting to me, back to the whole stigma thing, and you know, it works so well at the beginning. Do you think that part of, I mean, if you were to speculate, of course, it's not necessarily cut and dry, but do you think a lot of the stigma came out just because of the whole opioid epidemic and why it started with pharma and now there's so much stigma now when there wasn't at the beginning? Do you think it's just part of that whole disaster in the country or do you... Uh, the stigma of well, people, people being on buprenorphine or... Being on Suboxone? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we feel it. I mean, at the... Our patients can't go a lot of times to AA and they don't feel welcome. And I think um, AA and the twelve-step programs is a big is the big problem. They are still yeah. anti drugs, anti mm-hmm. anything that alters mood, and they've they were threatened by buprenorphine and Suboxone, so they looked into it and they said, "Yep, it's an opioid. It's mm-hmm. an opioid." So all these people are on an opioid, and that's just like methadone maintenance, and yeah. they don't care if it works. So I. Um, stuck to my guns because I was seeing the evidence in my own practice. And then when they researched it and found how effective uh, treating the opioid addict with maintenance therapy is compared to the abstinence therapy, it's it's one of the biggest differences in all of evidence-based medicine. Yeah. Right. I don't know if I know of anything that there's such a great difference in success between using one medication versus not using that medication. Yeah, so I think... As- I, yes. <laughs> so uh, now I forgot what I was even going to well, say. I'll Go say for it. For it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think if, that when we look at success in our program, and we have 110 people or so, you know, so much of our success is, you know, when we look at patients is they got their jobs back, they're working, they got their family back. And my gosh, you know, you it, it's just so stunning the difference that buprenorphine makes in that, right? When you get 60 to 70% of your patients back to work, back with their families, having families. I mean, we've had many babies uh, in our program. So, right. yeah, I think that's, it's just, I, we, we love to show people that because I think that's what success really is. I know what I was going to ask. What? what about your thoughts then as far as treatment facilities and, you know, some of their reluctance to accept it or, I mean, I, we just don't send our patients to those. I think but. it's abhorrent. It's just, yeah, it's just immoral to not let, people with this disease get the medicine that they need. Yeah. On the other hand, I remain a big proponent of 12-step recovery. Yep. Um, um, and I believe addiction is a brain disease, but it's also a disease of the spirit. It's a disease that affects spirituality, and recovery involves not only uh, medical treatment, and psychological treatment, but the best recovery would be spiritual treatment, mm. spiritual yep. recovery. Um, so I encourage all my patients to not only take their buprenorphine, take their Suboxone, um, but also work on relationships, work on any counseling they need, and really look into uh, a spiritual recovery program. And the 12-step spiritual recovery program is awesome and it's wonderful for people. And millions and millions of people have recovered with that. The deal I have, it doesn't need to be one or the other. You don't need yep. to choose a Suboxone recovery versus a spiritual recovery of, of a 12-step program. You can have both. Um, there's no reason why you can't have both, and that's why I 
I was on the board of directors of a treatment program that was 12-step base, and they didn't allow um, buprenorphine, so I resigned. Yeah. Wow. I, and I just cannot see why they couldn't accept somebody uh, to deny somebody a spiritual recovery just because they're getting a medical treatment. That's cool to think yeah. about. I think to end, at least my last final kind of thought would be, as far as you know, your patients and the ones you've been treating for so long, do you still see some of your first patients or how long on average do you see your patients on it? And then again, back to the whole first few patients, like do you know what's going on in their lives You know, 20 years later? I call my patients after I've taken them off, after I've weaned them off. And most of my ones that they're doing quite well and they're glad to hear from me. So interesting. It is a long process. I think buprenorphine suboxone treatment is years. It's not months. And I've got, I do have some patients that are over 15 years with me, um, seeing on a monthly basis. And I have some patients in their seventies that are on suboxone and I don't think they have any intention of coming off of it um, before they die. I think for some people it is a lifetime medication and they, they just don't see why, since they've changed their lives, and since it's worked so well, why should they, why should they take a risk and change? So this is why you don't retire because this you is still why have, I, <laughs> because of those people, and you want to keep seeing them. Right. I hope yeah. my wife doesn't listen to this. Podcast. <laughs> like, so do you I'll send her an email? So are, do you feel that these? I mean, you still did fam, general family medicine. Not or, now, I don't. No, think. but back when you started, did, did you do? I did family medicine up until five years ago. So of all of the patients you've seen in your whole career, do you still, I mean, because like me, I'm still obviously early in my career, I still do deliver babies and everything, but the 50 or so patients I personally have on Suboxone are still some of my favorite patients. Yeah. Even the hard ones, you know, they're just a different type of patient. They're fun. I mean, they're some of my most fun people that I see. Yeah, and you really develop a relationship with them Mm -hmm. because you see them. Frequently. Frequently on an ongoing basis for month after month, year after year. I think I'm way more likely to come out of a buprenorphine patient's room laughing than any other patient that I see because we will have conversations that are hilarious. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with Suboxone, right? No, it's, they're laughing at you. No, it's like they're, you know, they're li- their lives are so good and, and things are going well. And often our talks are not as much medical as you'd think. Yeah, one of my favorite patients is a woman who I saw. She was in the detox unit, and then she snuck in heroin to the detox unit, so she was put in a locked psych unit and then committed to a state institution. And then she went to a halfway house, and she started she started to see me as an outpatient with Suboxone. And then she finished that, and then she met a man and got married, and then she got a job with Wells Fargo and climbed the ladder there and is now has a high-paying job at Wells Fargo. She followed me and has had two kids who are now um, probably eight and six. Um, She is in her early 40s now and has had no relapses. She's a completely different person. That's crazy. She takes um, one milligram of Suboxone a day (laughs) but still still sees me on a regular basis. That's amazing. I got goosebumps. Those are the success stories that make. Do not retire. See, maybe I can't retire <laughs> ever. So, mm. wow. Well, we really appreciate having this talk today, Dr. Amer. It's been, uh, uh, I mean, you've just had an amazing career watching addiction medicine, I think, in Minnesota just evolve. And uh, it's just so fun to hear kind of the stories of how it just 
how it changes uh, patients and and uh, the, your whole career just changed the whole direction of your career, really. Yeah. Well, I'm just sitting here like, wow, pioneer. Yeah. I'm a little bit fangirling right now just because yeah. it's just amazing. Because what we were able to do based on what you did and changed all these protocols and everything. I think doctors mm-hmm. need to be humble and willing to be willing to listen to new evidence and being be open to change, though, because yeah. where we are now it's probably not what we're going to be doing 10 years from now. So. Yeah. Yeah, as new things come out for other addictions, which Absolutely. we're all waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we are. We're like, oh, I wish we had something for this. Right. Um, so hopefully that will come. So so thank you again for everything, and we will uh, be posting this, and uh, we hope people enjoy it. And uh, but, but thank you so much for My having pleasure. this time. Yeah, we'll let Battle Legs close it, but, yeah, see you next week. Here we go. All right.